Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. Now, recently in the podcast, we have been together trying to make sense of all sorts of things. Uh, This week, we will probably uh, reflect more in weeks to come about what's happening in Scotland. It now has a new first minister. And, of course, uh, in recent days, uh, the former leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, has been barred from standing as even a Labour candidate uh, at the next general election. These all will have consequences that we will be exploring. But, you know, in my conversations with politicians and others, they all say in the end, you know, like last week we explored, is Sunak kind of making a difference? Is there a path towards victory? Much of it comes back to the economy. Uh, So I thought if it's okay with all of you, we'd have a conversation with a brilliant economist who has also seen things behind the scenes as a member of the grand-sounding Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee. He is uh, Danny Blanchflower. Many of you will know he's now in the United States, Professor of Economics at Dartmouth College in uh, New Hampshire. He follows British politics and economics as if he was living here uh, very closely. Uh, And as I say, he was on the Monetary Policy Committee at a key moment uh, between 2006 to 2009. And of course, that coincided with the global crash of 2008. Uh, Danny, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Great to be here. Could we begin, if it's all right with you, with that? I mean, you were on the Monetary Policy Committee uh, during the global crash of 2008. I'm very conscious on this podcast, we haven't delved deep, really, in terms of the tremors in the banking system that we experienced a few weeks ago. I think you see, from what I gather from what you've written, quite distinct parallels between what is happening now in the banking system and the build-up to 2008. Absolutely. I went on that committee in 2006 because Gordon Brown called me up and said, please, would you come? Because you have expertise on labour markets on the US and the UK um, and come onto that committee, which is which is what I did. But what was interesting was really by around the fall of 2007, I took a very strong view that the world was falling apart, that there was a giant global crisis coming and what was interesting was that I was in a lone minority of one and was disparaged by my 
by colleagues on the NPC and, and in the newspapers. And my daughter was at St. Andrews at the time studying. And she called me up one day and she said, Daddy, it's awful. Somebody's just called you an idiot without a village. <laughs> so that was the so that obviously was a tough time. But I think the reality now is that the Northern Rock was a precursor to all of this. Um, by on the Monday of the week that Northern Rock failed, at the bank, the bank knew that it had limited amounts of money and money was draining from it. But the bank did nothing about it. Um, visits had not taken place to Northern Rock by the Bank of England. I mean, essentially, the governor, you know, didn't care. So what happened by the end of that week, people had pulled money out um, and essentially the website had failed and the authorities had to go over the weekend and decide what to do, much like what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, Essentially, you had no alternative other than to rescue all the depositors before the markets opened in Asia on that weekend. Um, And we can talk further about it, but the reality, and I remember at the time thinking, well, if if, if Northern Rocks failed, what about all, all the other banks that are like it? Bradford and Bingley, Alliance and Leicester. How, does, how do other banks look? And that analogy is really appropriate right now because you have Silicon Valley Bank. Yes, you rescued the depositors. But what about people who had a million dollars deposited in other banks? Why would they not just run away, which is part of the problem that, that's happening? So, so you have a banking crisis there, undisclosed deposits, unclear exactly which banks are stable and which are not. And does this thing spread? Well, it spreads to to Credit Suisse and and UBS gets to take over Credit Suisse, but you have to give it 9 billion Swiss francs because of the the stuff that they've got under the hood that that we don't really know about. So it's pretty hard to argue that we don't have precedent. And the worry is that, well, what did this precedent do? It created a giant financial crisis. RBS failed, Lloyd's failed, Lehman Brothers failed. And despite the assurances from the same people who are giving you assurances today, that baby spread. So is it your sense? I mean, uh, prediction is maybe too strong a word because it's very hard to follow the rhythms of all of this so neatly. But is it your sense that we are on the edge potentially of a financial crash on the scale of 2008? And these are the preliminary tremors that we had with Northern Rock in 2007. Well, I think, I mean, there's an element of that I, that I agree with in the sense that it, it seems to me to be very worrying. You know, this looks to be a degree of precedent. The question is, um, I mean, it seems to be very likely, and we'll talk about why in a second, it's very likely that we're going to have a really bad recession. One of the questions, however, is a couple of possibilities. Is it as deep as in 2008 and nine? Or is it as long-lasting? The Bank of England is actually predicting it won't be as deep, right? It fell by about, GDP fell by about five percentage points or so, but it lasted about five quarters. Currently, the Bank of England is actually forecasting that essentially there'll be no growth for 12 quarters. So the question, we're not clear, is it going to be as deep or, or as long? So I think that's the big deal. But I think central to our conversation is the fact that central banks, based on no evidence whatsoever, basically decided that they were just going to raise rates from basically nothing to 5, 5% or so with expectations of rising further with really no understanding of what's coming. And I think the real crucial starting point for us is, okay, the Fed raised rates as the Bank of England did, as the European Central Bank did, as the Norwegian Central Bank did. But the market in the United States today is pricing in five rate cuts in the rest of this year. So first of all, the problem is that it doesn't look good, but the credibility of the central bank, just as they were in 2008, 
is on the line. If markets are pricing in five rate cuts, they're basically saying to J-Pal, we don't believe a word that you say. We don't trust anything that you say. We have no confidence in you. And unless you, if you don't, and they're pricing in a rate cut at the next meeting. So obviously this, this disarray is very worrying. And the credibility of the central banks is in disarray. And the governor of the Bank of England this week said, that we're going to have to raise interest rates because an 82-year-old granny who worked six hours a week decided to give up their job. I mean, absolutely asinine nonsense. Okay, well, look, there's there's lots that uh, we need to uh, explore in that answer. Before we do, just tell us what it was like on the Monetary Policy Committee, uh, because I think you found, well, you indicated already, you found it pretty hellish. Uh, it, it sounds very uh, weighty and quite glamorous to be there at the heart of monetary policymaking. Gordon Brown put you in, and I think he then apologised for making your life hellish for a few years. What do you all get up to in, uh, behind the scenes in that committee? Well, I mean, the, there are there are conversations, obviously, that took place. And I'm an, I'm an empiricist. I looked at the United States, and I was traveling back and forth between the United States and the UK every three weeks. And I basically saw what happened in the United States passing over to the UK about six months later. And Mervyn King, I recall, said to me, the United States, he made a series of speeches, said, the United States is irrelevant. And I thought that was the biggest piece of nonsense I've ever heard. And the one thing I learned was actually the, big, the number one Dartmouth club in America is at Wall Street. The number two Dartmouth club is in Clinic Canary Wharf and in the city of London. And all those people used to come and see to me, and they all worked in the same banks. They were the same banks in Wall Street as they were in Canary Wharf. And I kept saying, you know, how can, how, how can that not be true? And in fact, late Rachel Lomax who was on the committee with, with me, a best good friend of mine, said to me, I think perhaps the biggest mistake the bank, that the MPC ever made was not listening to you about America. So I felt that I was a single lone voice for a very long time. I voted on my own. I was pilloried by everybody else. And actually, were you, you were literally in a minority of one Correct. Uh, in quite a few votes. Correct. And, actually, and therefore, therefore you were powerless. I mean, it well, sounds no, like a it, powerful fact, post. it wasn't. Let me tell you another story. Just, this is sort of telling out of school. And, I, and I've known Gordon Brown, who I think was wonderful, and Gordon Brown saved the world. But he called me in, I think, July 2008, and he said, Danny, for a year, you've been in a minority of one. And he said, I think you're right, but I want to say this to you. In a sense, what you need to understand is there are not eight opinions and yours. He said, there are two opinions, yours and theirs, and I think you're right, which is actually the best thing that ever happened to me. It sort of, what did they say, girded my loins or something. And it made me sort of think, okay, I'm going to keep going with this, and I'm, and I'm just going to keep going because I think I'm right. And then it turned out that I was right, and then the reaction of other members of the committee was something like, well, it was Danny's fault for not persuading us. And who could possibly have predicted it? And even if we'd have seen it, it wouldn't have made any difference, which I thought was, again, abject nonsense. If the Bank of England had seen it a year earlier, gone into the bank, started to think about what was going on, uh, it would have been better. So I felt at the time that, you know, it was, I was literally, I literally felt like the, the little boy who said the emperor's got no clothes and the emperor didn't have any clothes. Okay, so uh, that was your experience then on the Monetary Policy Committee. Uh, if you could just focus, obviously you're fairly <laughs> gloomy about the situation in America and, and, and elsewhere. In terms of the UK, um, clearly you think this banking crisis could well be not over by any means yet. 
more broadly your assessment of the British economy, which um, appears, compared with the rest of the G7, to be in a pretty anemic place. What, what's your overall view of the British well, economy? In- yeah, I mean, I think I think the the first thing is that the Bank of England has been really very bad and has really not really understood what's going on. The backdrop to all of this is Brexit. And I think Brexit sitting over here has been a disaster. I mean, I have tweeted, as you get, as you know, you and I, have, we tweet a lot. And I tweeted some time ago, could anybody please tell me, tweet me, send me a single economic benefit of Brexit? And to this point, I haven't actually had one. So I thought what I might say to you today was I, look, I was looking at the newspaper this morning and there was a surprise fall in Spanish inflation down to three right? We're 3.3 or something. So one of the questions is, well, why why is the UK uniquely placed? Well, it's uniquely placed because it took a disastrous Brexit decision. Um, The Brexit supply chains have closed up. You see all these pictures of a supermarket in choose choose your town in Europe, and they're all full of vegetables and tomatoes and stuff. And you look at a British one, and they're not. And if they're empty, if shelves are empty, that raises prices. And so one of the big things we've seen are food prices rising. The other thing, I mean, it's a good example of what you might have done. Where I sit in the United States, you can buy a mortgage, Steve. You can buy a, more, a fixed rate mortgage, 30 year mortgage. We'll think in 2015, they were going for dirt money. They were going for nothing. You could have bought a mortgage for 30 years for 2%. Well, why didn't the Bank of England and the government in this 10 year period, when interest rates were really low, allow banks, the same banks who operate in England, who also operate where I'm sitting today, to allow people to buy? Mortgages at 2%. Well, the answer is because a mortgage which is at 8% is more profitable. So now what you're seeing is the mortgage market in the UK is being hit. People are hit by the fact that prices are higher, but they're also now coming off really short-term mortgages at 3% or so and going to ones that are at 6 So the, the government could have insulated people from, an, from a coming inflation shock. So mortgages rise in price. They don't where I'm sitting because somebody's got a 3% mortgage for 30 years. They carry on making that payment. So there's a good example. And you can't argue that banks wouldn't do it because it's the same banks. Let's focus on, on both those separately. Brexit. Keir Starmer has ruled out rejoining the single market in certainly the first term of a Labour government. Does that mean, in your view, uh, that the UK economy will continue to struggle? Or is there a way, uh, another way of moving closer to the single market that addresses some of the concerns you are observing from a grand distance in the United States? I mean, obviously, you're the great expert on this. I mean, it's clear that the the, the, the statement that Starman has made is being driven by the politics. I mean, the politics are you've probably got to say, you know, I'm for Brexit. And the reality is that you know, you can't simply remove it today. And it, you know, politically, there's a, a, obviously a big part to that. Um, and obviously, the talk today about, oh, maybe they'll be into, into, this, into this, this relationship in the, in the Pacific. But um, the reality is that um, I, I think what you'll eventually see um, is that, the, 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 that it'll be a death by a thousand cuts. I think you'll see gradual, I mean, people like me will advocate, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to have to make it easier. You're going to have to do a deal which allows Steve Richards, when he flies to wherever it is, I don't know, Denmark, he gets to the Copenhagen airport and he's not going to have to stand in a queue for an hour and a half when everybody else gets through for free. So we start to do that. We'll start to make it easier for things to, to come through. And in fact, what you're going to see is that the, the well, I've called them the Brexit idiots, 
they eventually dissipate and go away. I mean, recall all the economists, basically, apart from a, few, a handful, always said this was going to be a disaster. And I recalled uh, Michael Gove, who I got into a debate with, He acu- and I kept saying the things to him, he t- accused me of being mugged by reality. Can you imagine you accuse a professor of economics? Like Michael Gove accused a professor of economics of being mugged by reality. And, of course, what you have is we, I mean, he called economists like me Nazis. So I think what you're going to see is the balance of the debate is going to become um, in, in, inevitable, a, a move away. It may not be Brexit, but it will be Brexit light. Um, obviously, the issue about Northern Ireland, the story there, I mean, I am in America, and, you know, the story there is if you mess, if you mess with the Irish peace accords, the President of the United States is not going to be happy. I mean, recall the President of the United States was in London when Liz Truss was Prime Minister and wouldn't even meet with her because of the whole craziness of Trussonomics and what was going on in Northern Ireland. So I think you're going to see, you're going to have to see a coming together, a, an improvement in the craziness that's happened. And and in a sense, it'll be ultimately be back to, I think, what you and I in the past have talked about. And I always argued you can't eat sovereignty. And in the end, the, in the end, the comparator that you've made, which is, well, what's I mean, Spain's got today's 3%. In fact, we got 10 you know, it's going to be the poorest country in the G7. Eventually, economics will drive this thing. And the politics are following because because the, the Labour Party is a long way ahead. And I suspect, you know, sensible economic policies will go. And just think about so a last point. Think about what happened when Labour came in in 1997. And Gordon Brown and Ed Bulls basically very quickly um, and, and, had not, and had not signaled it um, basically made the Bank of England independent, which gave confidence to the markets that they weren't going to do crazy stuff. And it lowered the cost of borrowing to the UK. So I'm hoping that you'll see those kinds of things. I understand the politics, but I'm still of the view, and I think it's the view of you know 99.999% of economists were true at the time of the debate and now, is there are no economic benefits of, of, of Brexit. This explains the parlous performance of the UK economy and is a large part to do with why the collapse in living standards for the people of the countries occurred. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You mentioned President Biden in the context of Northern Ireland. He also has uh, uh, borrowed big for his uh, green recovery plan, amongst other things. Uh, Labour uh, are proposing uh, a, a £28 billion uh, a year borrowing for its so-called green recovery plan, and Ed Miliband has been talking about it uh, this week. Is it your sense that that is big enough? 
could it be too big because borrowing is such an issue in the post trust era in the UK what what's your reading of uh labor in 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 the context of spending borrowing specifically again on on, on green recovery issues obviously the the united states has actually made a sort of diff, a different and and part of it of course is green but a pretty different path to that hunt took so actually, it's not just what the, what the Labour Party would do. Recall that what we're seeing the government do is just what happened in 2010. We're actually seeing austerity again. We've seen raising. So what you so what you say is, oh, it's all about disabled people and swimming pools and you know the poor and single mothers who are to blame. So we have to raise taxes and cut public investment, uh, which crowds out. You know, which means private investment falls. I think the reality is that the economic situation increasingly is going to become parlous and worse globally and especially in the UK. And the need to actually spend on almost anything. I I prefer to spend on sensible things. But in a recession, think of Keynes. I mean, in a sense, Steve, let's just go with it. Keynes actually said this would work. Let me give you this. I mean, obviously, you'd like it to be a sensible thing. But Keynes had this story, which is that in these periods, what you do is you pay people to go and make glass bottles. And you get, the, you get the government printing press to go out and print money and you hire people to put money in bottles and go around the country and hide them. <laughs> no, but I'm serious. That does the right Now, obviously, you'd much rather people build hospitals and, you know, and, and places for asylum seek. But actually, in a sense, my view is that, you know, filling bottles that with money would do it. Doing sensible green investment would do it. And go back to, go back to Osborne. What Oswald actually did was choose to cut public investment. Well, public investment in a recession crowds in private investment. And so what, you, what the problem, the parlous state of the UK economy is that public investments collapsed and private investments collapsed too. So the only way you're going to do this is to try and invest. And I think the story actually, Steve, is about investing in places, infrastructure and people. And if the way you'll the way you'll get people back to the workforce is invest in them to create good jobs, and so I think you're right about about yes, it's a good idea to invest in green, and that's a central part of it. But it's it's much bigger than it's that. wider, wider. It's interesting, and it's one of the themes we've explored on this podcast. Um, how difficult politicians have found it to discover the language that makes what you've just described accessible and plausible. As you say, you know, Keynes put the argument that you could spend on silly things yeah, and it would yeah. still benefit the economy. But 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 I think if Keir Starmer started saying we're going to spend on silly things, uh, he would be in deep trouble with the Daily Mail. So so it, it how what is the language that makes sense of what you've just explained when politicians come to it? Because you see how nervous Labour get about tax and spend. I love the words investment, Steve. Invest, invest. I mean, and the story I've got ahead in my head, supposing you, you, I come up with this idea, which is, you know, here's a hundred billion pounds, which we're going to invest in the UK economy on projects. And I say, okay, I don't know how to do this, but let's suppose I take the CEOs of the FTSE 30 companies and I say, you're right, you're the committee. And people are going to come to you and say, I would like some of your hundred billion. And here's my proposal. And their job is to choose for you the ones that have the highest rate of return. And if you think about, I mean, in a sense, the ridiculous argument that politicians made about borrowing, I would say, okay, 
if I can borrow at two, I should invest in any project that has a rate of return that's higher than two, right? It's mm. not about mm. what the debt is. It's what you spend it on. And I think that's, um, that's a really good way to go. And what you get back from the investment. That's exactly that's, right. Exactly that's right. the bit that yeah. the politicians putting this case often forget yes. to, to stress. You're not just throwing money into no. a vacuum. You're getting something right. back. Right. And, no, and, so, and so that, my wife's an accountant, always says to me, there's two sides to a balance sheet, right? So think of the logic for an economy. There might, in a recession, there might be a benefit if spending 100 billion, I mean, what, 100 billion pounds on throwing a wild party. But I don't want to do that. I would much. I mean, think about we're going to say. Well, let's put, let's go into high tech. Let's go. You know, let's set up a thing like the National Science Foundation. Let's pull every Nobel Prize winner we have in Britain in science, and we say, so, okay, here's a hundred billion. What should we spend it on? Come and make proposals, and and you are not to invest in anything that doesn't have a positive rate of return. So then a politician can say, well, we borrowed it too, and we've invested in a project that looks like it's going to have a forty-two percent rate of return. Who's against that? <laughs> well, you're probably going to be lost but you, your wife sounds a great accountant i wish she was my accountant <laughs> she's doing so, tax returns in the u.s now because everybody has to file their taxes on april the 15th so anyway. right right okay uh so uh you now if you were on the monetary policy committee here in the uk would again be finding yourself arguing against uh probably the majority yes. on the policy committee because you want much lower interest rates now don't you as, yeah, as Part of, I, I, I do, uh, uh, and, and the and the good thing in a way is that there are actually two dissenters already on the MPC. But let, I mean, I've made Richard Murphy and I have written a document that to, in, as a submission to the Treasury Select Committee about monetary policy and what to do. And I think I've got it really said in a good way. If I was at that meeting last week, I would have voted for a hundred and fifty basis point cut. And let me explain at the very least why the Bank of England looks to be bonkers. So if you look at what's happened over the last two weeks, this is driven by a guy in the United States called Torsten Slock, and I think he's right. And he says, basically, what you saw with, um, um, with Credit Suisse, and particularly they wiped out 17 billion Swiss francs worth of bondholders, what, you saw, what you've seen globally is a tightening of credit conditions. That tightening of credit conditions, which is central to our conversation today, he thinks is equivalent the banks around the world raising interest rates by 150 basis points, right? So why, let's say from five to six and a half. And essentially, my view is that you have to counter that. I mean, even if you go back two weeks ago, the Bank of England was saying you should do X. Well, now all of a sudden, without them doing anything, interest rates in the world, it's become much harder to get a loan. Bondholders who were prepared to invest last week now need a much higher rate of return because suddenly they, the, the chances of you being wiped out is much higher. So that's why the markets are basically saying central banks in the, globally have to cut rates. But the Bank of England doesn't have an excuse because all this banking crisis occurred before their last meeting. And I wrote about it. I said before it, how dare you go and raise interest rates by 25 basis points when suddenly the world has got much worse and you know it has to be the screeching U-turns, handbrake U-turns are coming, and here they go again. So I'm, I'm extremely upset about it. I would vote for 150 basis points in cuts, and they're going to have to turn around again and look completely ridiculous, missed it again. I think it's appalling. 
I think we've explored some of the themes whirling around uh, Britain and economics and indeed America and economics. As you are currently in America, and I, I know you've been, you haven't been to the UK for some time, though you follow it all so closely from there. Is it your assumption that the next presidential election could well be Biden versus Trump again? Um, obviously, there are uh, there are clearly these possibilities. Um, yeah, I mean, there's obviously a, a, a DeSantis is a possibility, but I mean, there's a lot of unknowns here. They're both old men. They're both pretty yeah. old, even older than you and me. Indeed, <laughs> quite indeed. Well, old We're men. Mere I mean, youths. The reality is that um, that 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 is considerable possibility here in the news. Of course, is you know, is Trump going to be indicted, and if he gets indicted, will that help him? I think there's great uncertainty here. Um, the election is some time away. Uh, it's unclear what an alternative to Biden would look like. I think the Biden going again is more likely. I think the other question, the big question is, is Trump going to be indicted before before um, before the election? Um, I, I don't know. Um, but I do think I do think that that's a concern. It's prob- if you were to say what's the most likely outcome today, it's what you just said. Right. Right. It, 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 as you say, I mean, they, they were old last time. Right? I mean, it <laughs> no, is, you know. <laughs> um, and, and, and returning to British politics rather than economics, although it's interconnected, but I'm about to ask. I mean, you knew Gordon Brown well. And as you said earlier, you were an admirer of Gordon Brown. Someone else who's an admirer of Gordon Brown is Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, who speaks to him quite a lot. Uh, have you formed an impression of her as shadow chancellor? I have. I mean, in a sense, in a sense, you know, you and I would let's say we're the advisory team. And in a sense, my advice to her would be to say, well, let's see what you agree with this. My advice to her to say, keep your powder dry. Just say, I'm against you blokes and women and you're creating such a terrible mess. We'll have to see what mess we get that we're going to inherit. I think that's the right thing today to do. My concern is that Rachel and Kastama haven't reached out to sympathetic, relatively sympathetic economists. Um, they have not, I mean, I, I, I would have hoped that the day they come in, they sneak out as, as Brown and Bulls did, all these great proposals. My sense is they haven't really done that. So I am somewhat concerned that, I mean, being against, being against the opposition who's been in power for 13 years is a smart thing to do. But what are you going to do about, I mean, you know, where's Sweeting was out there today? I, I'm not going to raise the pay of doctors. Well, okay. Fine, but doctors are out on strike, sunshine. If you get into power, you're going to have to deal with this. So I think the reality is going to hit them in the face. But I'm concerned that they have not reached out and have not got a strong set of economic plans, and I think they should be doing that. But but you have you not in that answer? If we were advising her, uh, and, and um, she, uh, she listens, I think, um, here you have highlighted the dilemma, haven't you? That you told her she should keep her powder dry. But to uh, they're then asked, well, what are your big ideas? And, for example, one of them might be a national childcare scheme. That costs lots of money. And so in order to explain how you pay for it, you cease to keep your powder dry. You have to go and commission. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are lots of people who can work on this stuff. I mean, let's go and commission. For example, if you have, I mean, I've got a daughter who's exactly in that position. Childcare costs are greater than the wage she can make. So she does, she isn't working. I mean, in a sense, what you want are economists writing and, and, and examining this and saying, okay, what are the costs of a national childcare p- program? But what are the benefits? What are the benefits to the UK economy of having these people come back in? What's the rate of return to this 
program. I mean, the way you said it, Steve, is, oh, this is just throwing money away. But I would argue, get, get a bunch of economists together and say, this is an investment in all our futures and our lives, right? And obviously, the big part of it, I mean, Jim Hegman has won Nobel Prizes, and he's talked about the huge benefit of schooling for children at three. There are, you know, I mean, I've got a, I've got a, a five-year-old grandson who's, learnt, who's actually in a bilingual school, and he's learning Spanish and English. I'll tell you what's funny. You say to him, talk to me in Spanish, and he doesn't know which one's Spanish and which one's English. Right? The teacher speaks some of the time in English and some of the time in Spanish, and, he, and he doesn't, he's never actually told this is. But if you think at 50, could you and I be taught English and Spanish together? No. So there are huge benefits to the society of mums being able and dads being able to go out to work and kids getting good quality education when they're three that's an investment in all our futures that's how i would write it some of our conversation has been pretty gloomy but there has been hope lurking there in terms of putting a case for investment well i think put put the country back to work and i've written a lot about good jobs secure good jobs i mean in a sense go back to the initial thing i talked about why is it that 55 year olds have left the labor market well the answer is that the the price the, the the alternatives under offer are better if you were to raise the quality of the jobs offer them decent pay, high quality jobs, they would come back to the labor market. That's why they've left. Uh, sometimes, I mean, they've been school- teachers in schools. Well, the relative wage has fallen, their real wage has fallen, and they've got jobs become stinky. So, you know, but understaffed, all of that. And so how are you going to get them back to work? You can't just say, get back to work as soon as and you say, okay, we'll invest in schools, we'll invest in young kids. Think about investing in childcare. That puts money into schools, that brings people back, gives hope and so on. And I think that's where labor is going to have to go. Hope, rebuild people's lives, invest in people. And I think that's the advice that I would give. And economists are really good at that kind of stuff. Danny Blanchfile, thanks so much. I know you're very busy uh, for giving up the time, making sense of it all. We've sorted it all <laughs> in our time really together. Great advisory and, team, right? <laughs> a great advisory team. I hope to see you when you come uh, to I- I England next. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Uh, let's get together very soon uh, next week to make sense of it all once more. If you're around, I'm live at the Witham in Barnacastle on Saturday and in Brighton at the Old Market Theatre on April the 24th. Thanks, all of you who've come to recent live shows. Uh, They've been fantastic and packed out. Uh, People are fascinated by politics and economics and everything else and want some fun as well. And I think we've combined all of that in our conversation. So (laughs) once again, uh, Danny, thanks so much for joining us. Have a good weekend, everyone. Bye.